Hey folks, this is Michael, and welcome to Tatter. Before we get started, I just want to say that unless anyone says that they are speaking on behalf of a particular organization or group, you should assume that each person's views expressed on Tatter are theirs and theirs alone. I just want to make that clear to avoid misunderstanding. And now that I have effectively precluded any such misunderstanding, let's get started. Here's Tatter. On January 23rd, 2016, then-candidate Donald Trump famously said, and I quote, I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and I wouldn't lose voters, end quote. In saying that, he was predicting loyalty on the part of his supporters, no matter what he said or did. And with his comments and actions, he has put that loyalty to the test. In fact, among those who call themselves Republicans, he has continued to enjoy strong support. But as Jamel Bowie at Slate has noted, that result likely misses some other important shifts. This was one of a number of issues I discussed recently with Jay Barth. Jay and I both grew up in Arkansas, and both received our undergrad degrees from Hendricks College in Conway, Arkansas. Jay is now on the faculty at Hendricks, serving as the M.E. and Ima Graves Peace Distinguished Professor of Politics, and he's also director of the college's Odyssey program. He graciously spoke with me about a range of issues dealing with Arkansas politics, Southern politics more generally, and national politics. Our conversation is the basis of this episode, which is titled, Old Times Forgotten. I reached out to you after you posted on Facebook a uh, slate essay by Jamel Bowie, and in posting it, uh, you seem to imply endorsement of his position where you characterized his point as, quote, a point I've been making to the point that husband and dog are tired of hearing it, end quote. So do you recall that slate piece? I do, yeah. So would you care to give a short summary and elaborate on your take on what Bowie's arguing? Yeah, I think he's arguing that, you know, there's been so much focus on the fact that overwhelming uh, majorities of Republicans uh, remain uh, supportive of, of the president. I mean, uh, that's that's unquestioned. But one variable that's been missing in the analysis has been what's happened to the share of Republicans in the American electorate. And, um, and we have seen um, some decrease... Uh, in uh, the percentage of folks who identify as Republican. Now, we, we don't do a lot of polling on this issue of, of what percentage of Americans identify with any party or as independents, but when, it does, when, when you can make comparisons across time in the same poll, we are seeing a little bit of melt uh, in, that, in that number. So, for instance, you know, if that number goes from 27% of the electorate in a given place to 24% of the electorate, and he remains at 90-plus percent approval, he's still shrinking in terms of the overall uh, percentage of Americans uh, who are supportive of the president. Um, and we're also seeing, and this has gotten, I think, more attention, uh, just how poorly uh, the president is performing with independent voters. 
um, and you combine those two facts together, uh, that is um, that is uh, um, you know significant in terms of uh, his standing in the overall electorate. Because what we're seeing is that uh, some of those Republicans are really shifting their allegiance uh, to calling themselves independents, uh, but they are also um, you know anti-Trump independents who were formerly Republicans. Uh, you write a column for the Arkansas Times, and I recall seeing a recent column of yours in which you noted that the number of voters in Democratic primary elections in Arkansas has gone down in recent years compared to previous years, while at the same time the number of voters in Republican primaries has gone up. And so on its face, that would seem to suggest that even if Bowie's suggestion is true at a national level that the number of Republican voters may be declining. It's not clear to me that that's happening in Arkansas. Am I off base there? No, I think you're totally accurate. I mean, Arkansas is not like the rest of the country when it comes to, you know, attitudes about the president. Now, uh, the president has had some uh, meaningful melt in his approval uh, levels in Arkansas. Um, you know, he obviously uh, was was quite popular in the state in 2016. He won um, uh, about 60% uh, of the vote. Um, but um, he is the last uh, approval numbers uh, that we did in a, a talk business in Hendricks College um, survey. You know, he was in the in the high 40s. Um, so that's that's some you know that's that's some melt from uh, where he was. The other interesting thing that we are seeing in Arkansas is that while it's not as profound as as nationally, we are seeing independent voters begin to move against him uh, a bit. Um, and so Arkansans are more comfortable calling themselves Republicans than historically, and they are very loyal in their support for the president, just like Republicans nationally. But we are starting to see some uh, division on Trump with independents, and that's very different than in uh, 2016 when independents skewed towards the president. I am on Fox News nationally having to debate anti-gun radicals. The last place in the world I expected to have to show up and debate is my own state capital in my home state of Arkansas, and of all people, Republicans. Jan Morgan um, See, is a um, um, former media figure who uh, owns a gun range uh, in Hot Springs and was uh, infamous for um, posting that Muslims would not be allowed to uh, come into her gun range as mm -hmm. customers and did boot out uh, two men uh, who were not Muslim but were instead Indian American um, and, uh, and Hindu and um, and but they were booted out because they looked Muslim, um, and um, so she uh, gained some some infamy uh, from that, and uh, used social media pretty effectively to gain you know gain some uh, uh, some recognition. She also testified uh, at the uh, state legislature on a, a bill uh, regarding guns on school campuses and other uh, college campuses and other places, public places in Arkansas, and she, um, she made a, you know, fairly rousing uh, testimony 
um, in favor of more gun access in the state. And so she was very much a kind of a gun candidate, but she was a, a candidate who was Trump-like in a lot of other ways in terms of her not being um, um, particularly uh, tied to the Republican establishment. In, in, instead, she was somebody very much from the outside and somebody who kind of has populist sentiments rather than core historical Republican uh, sentiments. And um, so the key question was, how was she going to do in the in the Republican primary this year? Because a lot of folks thought that while there was really no way she would beat um, a well-funded establishment governor in that primary, that, that the, she the, This is uh, Asa Hutchinson. Yeah, Asa Hutchinson, who is um, trying to uh, win his second term as governor, and who is um, a, a very conservative guy, but uh, but is also an establishment figure, uh, someone who has um, opposed uh, anti-LGBT legislation, um, has uh, opposed really anything that would uh, disrupt uh, a healthy business climate uh, in the state, and he's really seen as kind of the father of the establishment wing of the Republican Party. Uh, as it turned out, she only got about 30% of the vote in the May primary. She underperformed what a lot of people were expecting. And what we have seen is that the governor has been, therefore, freed up to uh, to, to be a little bit more moderate uh, going into the fall campaign rather than feeling this need to bow to her wing of the Republican Party. If she had gotten 45%, I think it would be a much different kind of campaign as he recognized that he had to make some overtures to her her wing of the party but she she underperformed and so do you take that result as further evidence that even within arkansas the trump wing of the republican party is experiencing some melt as you put it i think i think some melt and maybe some some lack of enthusiasm i think it's also important to recognize that you know trump republicans are less likely to show up for primary elections, right? Because they don't have a history of of voting in Republican primaries. They are very much Trump voters rather than um, historic Republican voters. And so they are, they are less likely to be uh, the kind of voters who are there every election. Uh, they will show up and vote uh, for, for Donald Trump. Um, I think there's no doubt about that. The question is... You know what's their impact uh, in between uh, in between primaries. Now, in other states, I think it's interesting because we've seen, you know, some of those uh, uh, Trump candidates actually do pretty well in primaries. Um, Arkansas, though, has a strong uh, establishment base that kind of shows up for the primary uh, elections. So it sounds as if, despite the intuitive appeal of this idea that for a Republican U.S. Senator or a Republican U.S. Representative to go against Trump would result in their being uh, faced with a formidable primary challenge. As intuitively appealing as that idea is, what I'm hearing from Bowie and hearing from you is that may not be as generally true as intuition would suggest and so the fear of of that on the part of republicans in washington may be misplaced 
I think maybe uh, a bit. Now, I think it, I, I want to be clear that you know Asa Hutchinson kind of made nice with Donald Trump um, in the uh, after Trump got the nomination. Uh, Hutchinson was very critical of Trump uh, during the primary season, mm-hmm. um, and um, you know really chastised him for some of his rhetoric during the primary campaign. But once he got the nomination, Hutchinson got on board for for Trump. Um, and while I think everybody knows that he's uh, uncomfortable with Trump and and some of his um, uh, some of his behavior, um, he is somebody who at least publicly. Um, has has remained pretty loyal uh, to the president. Sticking with Arkansas, uh, but looking ahead to the fall, my understanding is neither of Arkansas's senators is up for re-election this year. That's right, but we do have four contested uh, um, congressional uh, races. So Arkansas has four members of Congress, and all four are held, are Republican. Um, and all four do have opponents this time. So when you consider those four, do any of them look vulnerable to you? Yeah, I think clearly the race that everybody is watching here is in the second congressional district, which is central Arkansas, um, including uh, the Little Rock metropolitan area. Um, it's a, a, a district that was um, Democratic for, for years, uh, but went Republican in 2010 uh, and has stayed that way uh, through two different Republican congressmen. The uh, incumbent, French Hill, is up for a third term. He is um, someone who um, I think is, was perceived as a fairly moderate guy uh, when, he was, um, when he was first elected, uh, but he has been unwavering in, in his support of, of uh, President Trump. Um, and in particular, his um, his vote to uh, to repeal Obamacare um, is causing him uh, some headaches in uh, in the Arkansas Second District, as that program has gotten more popular. Um, and um, and Arkansas, of course, has expanded Medicaid as well, uh, which means that the impact of of Obamacare is even more pronounced in Arkansas than in some other states that have not uh, expanded Medicaid. So um, it is, um, uh, and his opponent uh, is a very um, uh, dynamic state legislator uh, who himself, although he's only 36, uh, faced a, a cancer scare last year uh, with uh, bladder cancer that that was um, that was resolved. Uh, but he he's very much personalized the story of health care access. What's that candidate's name? Uh, Clark Tucker. Mm-hmm. And so um, so there that that race um, has shifted. It's now, according to you know national prognosticators, in the lean um, Republican um, uh, area. The question is, does it become a true toss up, uh, and does the national money uh, from uh, the Democrats and related groups really flow into the state. Um, the Republicans do have a fair amount of money supporting Hill, of course, an incumbent, and um, Senator Tom Cotton's super PAC is uh, playing a, a significant role in the in the in the race. <laughs> Thank mm-hmm. you.
When you and I were growing up, it was an era when Democrat Dale Bumpers was a U.S. Senator, Democratic uh, uh, Senator Mark Pryor represented the state. David Pryor. I'm oh, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Excuse me. Yeah. Yes, uh, Mark Pryor was uh, is his son, uh, but also a U.S. Senator. Um, uh, the state seems to have tilted much more in a Republican direction since then. I wonder if it's tilted so far where both U.S. Senators are Republicans, the governor is a Republican, all four Republican incumbents in the U.S. House, uh, all, all four of those are Republicans. Has the state shifted so far that for a political scientist interested in Arkansas politics, it's gotten boring now? Yeah, I mean, it. it um, I think it has been a little boring the last few years. I mean, you know, it, Arkansas was for for um, a couple of decades, you know, a real outlier in the South. Yeah. And it was this, and that it was a state where Democrats continued to do well, even though they were doing poorly elsewhere. That's changed, and so it's it's less interesting to describe. What is a little interesting is that you know Arkansas has been more pragmatic. When it comes to Medicaid expansion, for for instance, yeah. uh, than other southern states, um, Arkansas did pass medical marijuana uh, at the ballot box. So it is still a weird state in some ways, in terms of um, you know doing things you wouldn't expect and doing things that uh, neighboring states uh, have not done. But in terms of par- partisan politics, I think it is. Uh, a little less interesting at the moment. The the things that I think are are worth watching is there is this factional divide within the Republican Party, and um, on a number of occasions the establishment Republicans work with Democrats to get things done. Uh, so that's an interesting uh, pattern um, that we're seeing. And um, I think the other uh, other thing that is interesting, and we are seeing this. Cycle is that there is movement um, in a Democratic direction in northwest Arkansas, which is the, the part of the state that, of course, where Walmart is based and uh, uh, a variety of companies that, that link to Walmart as vendors. And so you have a lot of uh, folks who are moving to that part of the state. Uh, it's been fast-growing for a, for a long time, but but the growth now is more high-tech oriented, mm-hmm. um, and you see a lot more uh, diversity um, and a lot more uh, folks who who are drawn to living in that area because of uh, the vibrant art scene uh, up there in northwest Arkansas. And so, uh, if there's going to be significant demographic change that results in um, in true political change statewide, it's going to come out of northwest Arkansas. And we see a bunch of uh, uh, state legislative candidates, most of them women, uh, running in that part of the state this cycle. Actually, you, you're, you're mentioning women reminds me that I was reading a bit today about a couple of gender gaps in voting. So one of which is a tendency for women to favor Democrats more so and for men to repu- uh, favor Republicans more so. Well, there certainly is a, um, a gender gap um, in, um, in Arkansas related to the president. Um, you know, that really shows itself uh, all over the place. Uh, it's probably not quite as pronounced in Arkansas as in other states because Arkansas has 
such a low um, college graduation rate. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, where we really see the gaps grow are with college-educated women. Um, Arkansas has you know lower education levels, and and so the gaps aren't quite as strong. So I had a chance a few months ago to talk to Seth Maskett at uh, the University of Denver, and one of the things he was pointing out was his sense that the conventional wisdom within political science is that in in midterms there are a couple of fundamentals that go a long way toward accounting for the success of Democrats relative to Republicans, and one is the popularity of the incumbent president, and the other is the state of the economy, with an additional um, uh, historical fact being that almost invariably the president's party tends to lose seats during the uh, midterm election. But focusing on those two fundamentals, I wonder if you would agree either in terms of national trends or the success of candidates in Arkansas specifically would you agree that it tends to boil down to those two fundamentals? Yeah, no, I agree. Uh, I agree wholeheartedly uh, with that. Um, I think the question um, is, big question, is whether we're in a period of more fundamental realignment of the electorate, mm-hmm. um, not just a normal, you know, ups and downs of presidential years versus off years, but whether something more uh, transformative is un- underway in terms of the nation's politics. Is that the the dividing lines uh, between folks who uh, who vote Democratic and think and, and think of themselves as Democrats and those who vote vote and uh, vote Republican is really shifting. And and there are all kinds of signs that you know President Trump has um, kind of um, been been the uh, uh, the force for a a truly uh, finishing up um, a realignment that has started several years ago because clearly uh, President Obama uh, pulled into the Democratic Party a lot of upscale tech oriented voters, but he also was able to maintain pretty good numbers among um, you know more uh, lower educated voters who who were scared. By uh, the new economy, who were had deep concerns about the new economy, uh, but also were, uh, you know, were frustrated with the President Bush's uh, performance on the economy, and and weren't convinced the Republicans were really going to be able to offer them uh, an alternative with a with a more globalist message that was the Republicans' mes- message under McCain and Romney. I think that Trump has really helped shift. The electorate in a more fundamental way, um, and so the dividing line is just different than it was two, two or four years ago. And so, you know, the question is, well, what? How does that all play out? Um, you know, we saw how it played out, but in the upper Midwest last time, you know, do does that start to lock in in the upper Midwest? And then the follow-up question is, well, what happens in states like Georgia and Texas and Arizona, where we're seeing a very different kind of um, of uh, electorate really kind of come together and potentially uh, swing those states in a new direction. Are you mean in a more democratic direction or not? Yeah, I mean these are republic states that have been Republican a long time, um, 
do they because of their um, their more upscale, high tech oriented workforce and uh, their enlarged percentage of um, of persons of color? Does that really you know shift uh, those uh, states that have been Republican in a more Democratic direction in response to uh, and probably you know overwhelming those shifts that we've seen in the upper Midwest. Now, what we have seen in some polling is that, you know, some of those Trump voters in the upper Midwest are are, are cooling a bit and certainly, cool, you know, uh, less enthusiastic about turnout. So I think we're going to see some turnout problems for the Republicans, you know, in the upper Midwest states, uh, Pennsylvania, Michigan, et cetera, where, uh, where Trump did uh, exceptionally well in, uh, in 2016. Are you, in terms of a bottom line bet, do you have a bet on whether the Democrats are going to take back the House this fall? You know, I I think the dynamics are, are very well positioned for, for a Democratic takeover. Um, the question is, is it a, is this a squeak, squeaker, which then, especially because of, you know, I think a lot of folks' frustration with Nancy Pelosi, despite her great gifts as a leader, um, does it does it mean she probably can't you know govern successfully or lead successfully? Um, are um, are is it a larger win uh, which really um, you know solidifies the Democratic majority? Probably keeps her uh, in in power um, for 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 the for the you know next two years. I think those are the big questions. Thank you very much. I've just received a call from Secretary Clinton. She congratulated us, it's about us, on our victory. And I congratulated her and her family on a very, very hard Were you campaign. teaching in the fall of 2016? I was. Did you teach a day or two after the election? I did. I taught the next day. I did, too. I'm curious if you recall how that went, and if so, if you can tell me about it. Yeah, I um, I intentionally... It was a, a American Political Parties and Elections course, so it was obviously deeply relevant. Um, and... I intentionally, for the first um, three quarters of that class, um, went straight into analytical mode. Mm -hmm. Um, And I wanted students to um, to put to put their uh, to engage their um, their analytical skills when it came to understanding what had happened in terms of the electoral outcomes um, that you know I, th- I thought th- thought it was my um, responsibility to be a role model in the sense that it was important even in times when um, when was shocked and and disturbed by the outcome of an election that that first and foremost, it was important to still be able to 
um, engage oneself analytically. Um, I did consciously save the last 15 minutes or so, uh, but the last, rather than starting with it, I consciously saved it to the end uh, to allow students to express and share their own kind of more affective response to what had happened. Now, there had been an, another session on campus, which I had facilitated, which was a, you know, a, a forum that was very much about uh, what folks were, were feeling, their concerns, their, their angst, etc. That had happened before my class, and so maybe that's one reason that I felt more comfortable to, and a number of the students in the class had been at that, so I felt more comfortable to shift gears to more um, analytical, a more analytical focused. It sounds as if both your approach and your experience were similar to mine. So I teach at Bates College, and the student body here tends to lean progressive. To I say that it's some with some degree of understatement. And uh, I came at I was due to teach at eight a.m. that morning, and then again I think at. 11 or noon and in both classes I came in aiming for an analytical approach uh, so for example in each class I, I, I set aside the planned content on the syllabus and asked students to think about concepts that in social psychology that could help us understand how a result that took so many people by surprise in the presidential election could have occurred. So, for example, we talked about this concept from social psychology known as pluralistic ignorance, where the idea is, so in in one of the first demonstrations, Princeton undergrads were asked to rate their own level of comfort with the drinking culture at Princeton, and then to rate how they thought the average Princeton student would feel about the comfort with drinking, the drinking culture at Princeton. And the typical student in the sample judge the typical student is more comfortable than than they were and so it was this demonstration that people can misperceive social norms and, and it's it's a phenomenon that's been shown say for affirmative action as well that at cornell university I, I believe a study indicated that the students in the sample overestimated the number of students at cornell who supported affirmative action so in each case there's evidence that we can misperceive the norm in part because people who subscribe to a position that they think is in the minority may not be vocal about it. And so I was trying to get students to think about how, in this case, maybe even here at Bates, there was more support for Trump than people realized. And at 8 a.m., coming off the heels of the election, the students weren't quite ready for it, but by noon they were. So it seems similar to what happened in your case where there'd been this session already. Um, So... Uh, in, in terms of our pedagogy there, we were taking similar approaches. Regarding Arkansas politics, or Southern politics more generally, are there any interesting things that I've not giving you an opportunity to talk about with my questions that you want to mention. 
Well, I think I you know refer to it, but um, I do think there is this uh, you know really interesting um, uh, two south uh, beginning to um, emerge and deepen. Um, you know this um, urban suburban south with um, really a growing acceptance of of diversity in American life, um, a more globalized perspective because the folks who work in jobs in those areas are linked to folks all over the world and they really think in more global terms. And then a you know, decidedly more provincial South that is um, um, that is that you know interestingly most both both black and white um, really are I think having more difficulty adjusting to uh, to change um, and so I think that's the that's a super interesting story and we're seeing it play out in every southern state um, the numbers are different in each southern state in terms of of um, you know where the um, how exactly it 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 comes down in terms of who wins and loses elections, uh, but I think the um, you know the Georgia governor's race is going to be the um, the great test of where uh, those two South are in the state where arguably they are most uh, closely contested, and there of course you have a a very dynamic um, uh, African-American woman who would be the first female African-American elected governor. She was successful, who is who is quite progressive, uh, but is also emphasizing, you know, bread and butter issues such as Medicaid expansion in her campaign. Um, and then you have a, a, a pretty reactionary uh, Trump supporter um, uh, Republican who, who won uh, his Republican Runoff on the basis of uh, tweeted support from uh, from from President Trump. So, do you see an issue like Medicaid expansion or health care reform, more generally, as one that could unite progressives in that urban South to which you referred with people in particularly? Uh, poor residents in that more provincial South, who even if they aren't going to embrace the issues of diversity, perhaps especially related to sexual orientation, gender identity, gender expression, but they might on those economic issues find common cause with Democrats, progressives in urban areas. Yeah, and I think it's, um, yeah, I mean, it's, literally about dollars and cents, um, you know, in terms of um, the states that have um, have accepted uh, Medicaid expansion, you know, their their state economies are simply in better shape uh, because of um, not only the imp- impact on um, state spending uh, from that um, and the way in which, uh, which that plays out, uh, but then, of course, the the, the pocketbook issues of of the folks who really would benefit directly from that from that Medicaid expansion. So um, I think there is something very interesting happening around that issue uh, in uh, 
uh, in the South. That's it for Tatter. I want to thank Jay for taking the time to talk with me. Check out tatter.fireside.fm and go to the page for this episode for links to information about Jay, including information on the Odyssey program, which he directs. As always, to offer feedback on this or any episode, use Twitter. The handle is at tatter underscore rags. You can also go to iTunes and post a review. To offer monetary support, go to patreon.com slash tatter, where you can do the equivalent of buying me a cup of coffee or a beer once a month. In any case, thank you for listening, and be well. <laughs>